If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Harriet Tubman. In the Civil War, Harriet Tubman was a nurse, a spy, a cook, and a leader of men. She rubbed elbows with Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, and had a chance to speak with Lincoln. She was close friends with John Brown and recruited men for his raid on Harper's Ferry to acquire guns to further the cause. It was like she never ran out of energy to do more and help people. One of my favorite moments of these episodes was her response to being on the $20 bill a few years from now. The other is what she wants next in her life. She'll say that right at the end of this episode. It's priceless. After you were hit in the head, is that when you started having the visions? Yes, sir. Yes. That's when they started. The visions of the horses and the commotion. And If you really... Think about it. That's what was happening then. All the commotion and all the people screaming and yelling and the people crying out and everything. That's what was happening before I went down. So that wasn't too unusual. But what you may find unusual is them dreams about flying. Yes, sir. You had dreams of flying? Yes, sir. Flew right over the Bucktown store, right over the, why I could reach down and touch the tassels on the corner, and touch the steeple on the church, and I was flying right on over the waters, and I, I come across the Bucktown, Black River Swamp, I believe it was, and I kept on flying. Then I hit a wall, it felt like, and I was falling. I looked down, and all these women in white dresses, they was reaching up to me, and they said, Moses, send me in another dream. In another dream, people reached down and took my hand, and they lifted me right up over that wall. That's right. Why, today I believe that wall must have been the Mason-Dixie line. That's what I believe, and I believe that, oh, my goodness, the woman may have been all my friends. I didn't know the faces later on, but they, they must have been all the friends I met later on. Would it be all the people you were taking north Mark of? Coffin. Yes, sir. Lucretia Mott. Yes, sir. All them women. Gosh. Emily Howland. All them women. You know, as, as I look back at some of these stories that you've told me, and, you know, you look at y- your father working with you and your mother teaching you what to do with herbs to heal people and then you know your parents basically teaching you to be self-sufficient and you even look at when you were talking about when you were beaten as a six-year-old because the baby was crying how that prepared you for the night watch I mean you just you look later at your life and you see of all the things that you were capable of doing and the reason you were capable of doing these things because you've got all these people around you that were teaching you to be self-sufficient at a very young age. Oh, my goodness. So I'm going to tell you. I'm going to get back to your question in a minute, but this is not easy, sir, because, you see, in Auburn here, there's so many nice people that want to help you. But 
the people I keep here have been through a lot. Some of these old soldiers, old black soldiers that have been through the war, they see somebody knocking in the front door, and if they wait sometimes, so they run out the back door in the field, in the woods, and they hide. And i got to go back and get them and bring them in, tell them it's safe. See, they're still living in 1903, and they're still living in fear. You know, some of these people. So they're, you're saying the people, are, they're just afraid right now because they still feel like yes. it's 50 years ago in your time. They're always afraid. Yes, sir. They're always afraid. Most of the people I brought up into Canada, St. Catharines, they're staying here. In Auburn now, they moved down to Auburn with me because they felt safe where I was. They've always felt safe. You so much has been happening. So much has happened here. But these people here, and they mighty fine people here in Auburn. They help us out, and we got the children in school and everything. But you were saying now. Yeah, I was saying that all of these different situations that you grew up with, they basically, it was a combination of things that happened to you and things that your parents taught you that it was all making you self-sufficient so that oh, when was, you... Ooh, you hit the nail on the head. You said family. Yeah, your family's making you self-sufficient. And later on, you needed those skills to carry a gun when you were actually fighting in, at Combe River. And you needed those skills when you needed to be able to make medicine when there wasn't enough medicine. And it actually seems like you being self-sufficient helped you get money when you needed it because you needed money for these things, and yet it seems like when you got money, you just gave it away immediately. But I guess I just look at your parents, and they, I think they did a really good job getting you ready for a very difficult life. Of course they did. Of course they did. And I, I say that if so many of us had come up with our mamas and our papas, we'd be a lot better off. We'd be a lot better off because if the children selling the children away from their, their family like that. They don't have a proper upbringing. There ain't nobody leading in them and, and teaching them. You see, my grandmama Modesty even lived with us for a time. Modesty come over from Africa. That's right. She come over from Africa. It's, they say that right on the Chesapeake Bay, Master bought her right off the bay of Chesapeake River. That's right, right off that bay. They're selling her right there. And they keep Your her grandmother? Right here too. She ain't never gone too far. That's right. That's wow. right. Because she was somebody else who told me about them healing, healing, I call them poultices, that you put the herbs in the flour sack and you put that sack in the water and you boil it and, and you put that on what else you. So your he grandmother played that. a role in that too. That's right. And we learned too from the people who was put on this land originally from God's good providence. The people, they moved off the land. The original people on this soil, on these lands, we learned from them too. Susquehanna tribe up there near the Susquehanna River and other people and the Chess and Native Americans and you know that's where we learn our stuff from. Mm. We didn't have no books, we didn't go to no school, but our parents when they was teaching us things, 
They told us how to take care of ourselves. They told us how to treat other people right. Some people see the Bible, but they don't open it and read it. Well, <laughs> we didn't read it ourselves. As a matter of fact, there was two Bibles. There was a Bible for the white folks, and there was a Bible for the people enslaved. That was called the slave Bible. It was a little, thin new Bible. That only thing it taught you was obey your master. Obey your master. And your, that's all. There, there were two Bibles? That's right, sir. Two Bibles. But I tell you, there was a great movement across the land. Great revival. They called it the second great awakening. People, women especially, black women named Zarina Lee, Miss Elor, coming across the land. I think my mama may have seen them or heard them herself, talking about God loves us all and God made us free. God don't want us to be enslaved because the God sets you free, you're free indeed. So we're free. I see, I, I knew I was free a long time ago. That's right. I knew I was free. Do you know that when the Emancipation Proclamation came about and I was down there in Beaufort, South Carolina, Ooh, and the gun and get you, men and women was there. Women, they all dressed up in their bright bandanas and such. And they was, well, some of them, they was watching me. And I, I was not celebrating like they thought I should be celebrating. And they asked me, aren't you happy, Miss Tubman? And why aren't you celebrating? And I tell them because I celebrated my freedom 10 years ago because God told me in New York City, that I was already free. Now, I don't know New York, upstate, someplace, but I, I was dreaming, and God said, you free already. And I jumped out of my bed, and I was heaping and hooping in the island. And, ooh. You already had your freedom. You didn't need to celebrate again. I was celebrating, woke up everybody in the house I did, and the, the preacher said, Harry, hold your peace. You're going to wake everybody up. Hold your peace. And I said, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. God told me I'm free. So I've been free since then. See, I was celebrating my freedom before I even got it physically. I was celebrating my freedom. I was celebrating my victory before I was even told that I had won. That's fantastic. God told me that. I talked to God just like I'm talking to you right now. You have that close of a relationship with God where you feel like, it feels like you, just like we're talking right now. Yeah, I talk to God, God talks to me. Wow. Well, let me, speaking of freedom, let's talk about John Brown for a second. I had a really nice conversation with John Brown a couple of days ago. And I know that you, he, I think he called you General Tubman, so he obviously had quite a bit of respect for you. John Brown was trying to free all the slaves. What, is your, what was your relationship with him? What can you tell me about John Brown? John Brown, he was my good friend. I met him up in Canada. He told me all about his plans for this raid. And you're talking about the raid on Harper's Ferry? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. See, he had a vision. He had a vision of freedom. He said, it ain't going to take that much. Just get the guns and give them to the folks on the plantation, and let them free themselves. I thought that was a good plan. Of course, up to then, there wasn't too many plans. 
to everybody. Right. So he sent me out to call him recruit people for this mission. And I did. I was supposed to be on the mission myself. But I don't know where I was at that time. Maybe I got sick. I don't know if I was slapping my gums like I am right now. Stage in Boston. All I know is that I wasn't there, and I was supposed to be with him, but I wasn't there. Some people think that mm. you intentionally weren't there because his <laughs> raid was a suicide mission. His plan wasn't good. Is there any reason to believe that might they be true? They don't know me. Shut them people's mouths. <laughs> they don't know me. I'd have done anything to been on that raid. Because here was a white man. Fixing to give his life for black people like me. Ain't too many white people like that going to give up their life for no black folk. All I know is that years later, I think his name was Greener or somebody, a black man, and he said maybe there should be another raid. I don't know. But this man was brave enough to carry it out. I wonder what would have happened if John Brown would have been able to get all those guns because I understand there were a hundred thousand guns that he was trying to get access to and then was going to arm the black folks so that they could free themselves, as you said. He was going to give them all a persuader, as you said earlier. Can you imagine if he had passed out all of those guns? I mean, can you imagine? It would have been chaos. Chaos, you say? Chaos. Is that the wrong word? Can you imagine the chaos? in the lives of all the people, even up until 1865. And after that, chaos was was happening every day in the lives of my family. I mean, that's probably the most white thing I've ever said because it was chaos. Well, I don't understand the white thing, but I just want you to understand my family particularly. You see, I didn't take to that Lincoln. No, sir. I didn't take to him at first. Abraham Lincoln? I didn't understand. That's right. Ooh. So during the truth, you know, I met her about 1864, and she said, come on to Washington City with me. I want to introduce you, Abraham Lincoln. And there's a woman there, this people, that people, and all these Freddie Douglas. I knew him already. But I want you to meet these people. I said, I don't care much about meeting him right now because, you see, in my family in Maryland, we weren't free until after the Civil War because the Emancipation Proclamation did not free us in Maryland. My, they were still selling my family. Because when I went back to get Rachel, my sister, she had died already. And that must have been about 1860. But from 1860 to 1865, it was still okay for them to take my family and the people in my neighborhood and sell them. The army was there, but they didn't have the kind of power that you think they had. See, they had to, they had to keep the peace of mind calm for the white folks there so that they could talk to them and make plans with them and stuff. It, 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 it ain't nobody thought about my peace of mind or my mama's peace of mind or my father's peace of mind. Nobody thought about a black mother's peace of mind. But they had to keep the peace of mind of the white folks there. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. He wasn't yeah. always set free by the Emancipation yeah. Proclamation. If a child of 14 or 15 were in a master's home and the mother may have gone to the general, or well, not the general, but one of the soldiers and said, my child is being abused, the soldier would have to say that there's nothing he could do about it. His hands are tied because they're trying to keep the peace. They don't want to start no, no conflicts with the people in the community. See, they didn't see us as people in the community. We were still slaves. You were still cattle and sheep, and you're just like animals. That's right. That's right. Because Lincoln wanted to keep the union together. He didn't want to free the slaves because he knew that was going to be bad for him. You know, his, what do you call it, his politics? That would have been bad for him. That would have looked bad for him because he tried to keep the country together. But were we part of the country? Were we part of the country? No. No, sir. I didn't take to him. While he was deciding and planning, my family was being ripped apart Yeah. because he didn't care about freeing us. That wasn't his plan. His plan was keeping the union together. Understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> we didn't leave the union. So he was trying to keep the people in charge of the state in the government, the senators and such. He was trying to keep them calm. I'm not going to take away your way of life. I'm not going to change your thoughts about whether or not you should or you shouldn't keep people chained up. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to preserve the union and to make sure you are still a part of the union. That's all he wanted. But later on, I understood a little bit more about what he was doing and he was looking at the bigger picture, and I was looking at my family and my neighborhood being destroyed. That is, is why I personally went down and got as many people out as I could. Because he's looking out for his, and you had to look out for yours. That makes sense. That's right. Exactly. As you think about Lincoln, Lincoln's known as the man who freed slaves. And now what you're saying makes a lot of sense. That really wasn't his plan. His plan was to keep the union together. That was number one, whether we were freeing slaves or not. And that just developed into a situation where he actually managed to get the Emancipation Proclamation through and, of course, won the Civil War. But it was never really his plan, is what you're saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. While Lincoln wanted us to be sent back to Liberia, yeah, what's up with that? Case, yes, colonization. He wanted us to go back to Africa. And he said Africa is our home. And he felt that would get rid of the what they call the Negro problem was to send us back to Africa. But Africa, where was my home? Yeah, your home was where you they were. Said, That's right. Modesty, they said she was one of them shanty people or a shanty people from Ghana, but where in Ghana? Where was our home? Where was my home? Where was his home or her home? Nobody knew. Nobody. We were the ones that tilled the soil 
we were the ones that dug the roads, you see. Mm-hmm. We were the ones that built the buildings and the infrastructure, the ditches. The, uh, the, the, we built the country. We built the south. We built the north. We were the ones that labored for the wood that was sent up north to build the homes, the sugar in your tea, to the shirt on your back. That was supplied by slave labor. Where's that the sugar going to come from if everybody's moved to uh, Africa? Where's the sugar? Hey, you didn't think about that. You didn't he think definitely. about Louisiana and Florida. And this is, it wasn't a well-thought-out plan. This was our country, and we were not going to leave our country. If, they ship them in. They ship us in here. And then they want to ship you back Now they want to ship you out. Ship us out. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's such an people absurd thing. Sir, I'm going to tell you, when the people came in here, they come in from Europe, when they came in, and they thought how much cotton was going to bring in Europe and tobacco. Oh, my goodness. They said all we have to do is clear these people that have lived here off the land. So they swept by killing and pushing and destroying the food crops and just the, just killing all them Native Americans. Yeah. And they said, the land is empty now. Bring in the people from Africa. Bring in the people from Ghana. Bring in the people from Senegal, bring in the people from Angola. Bring them all in now from all these parts. The land is clear now, and that's what you call westward expansion. They've been pushing the Native Americans off the land and pulling the crops, the cotton, and stuffing their pockets with the money. I'm talking about in Charleston, where I've seen it with, I've seen it with my own eyes. The cotton there is different than the cotton up in Alabama. How so? They say that, that cotton, it's like linen. It's called long staple cotton. And it's like linen. It's real soft. And it's, it's in such a high demand on the market in Wales, England, because it makes the nice fine dresses and fine shirts. And it made Charleston rich beyond your wildest imagination, as well as the what you call it, Wall Street, at, well, at Wall Street, clear up into Rhode Island, and all the North was making money out of the cotton from down here. Ms. Tubman, uh, do, you, do you invest your money in Wall Street? Would I invest my money in my, Wall Street? Well, I tell you, I invest my money in people. Yes, you <laughs> they did. get so mad at me. Ooh, Martha Coffin, right? And... and Ooh, Missy, ooh, they get so mad at me. They said, Harriet, why do you give all your money away to your family, your, your mom? Harriet, why do you do I said, every dime I get, go from hand to mouth. I want to feed the people. And shouldn't, shouldn't nobody be hungry here? This is a rich country. This is a rich nation. Yeah. There ain't no hunger here. Yes, I feed the other people. That's what you're supposed to do. God said, well, he's going to hold you to it later on. He's going to say, where were you when they was hungry? Where were you when they was in prison and you didn't free you? Where were you? So I said, Lord Almighty, I was already feeding the people as much as I could. That's one of my favorite qualities as I've learned about you is that 
we know that you really never accumulated any money. And that was by design. Because like you're saying, there were always people that needed it. And if you had it, you just gave it to them. And there's a certain irony in that because eight years from now, they're talking about changing the American $20 bill and they're going to put your face on the $20 bill. My face on the $20 bill. Yeah, they're going to put your face on money. Well, my goodness, what? My face. <laughs> like, what you say? You know, I, I ain't never had no two nickels to rub together. They go, they're going to put my face on that $20. Well, I have a theory I on that. I'm that's something. Ain't that something? <laughs> I thought you would get a kick out of that. The thing, I have a theory on this. My, my theory is that well, as, no. as charitable as you were, Maybe if your face is on the 20, maybe it'll encourage more people to give it away. Well, I believe it just might do that. But I, just, I, can't even, I can't even think about something like that. But that, is a, that would be right wonderful. That would be right wonderful. It would be not. Oh, my God. What? So tell me, oh in, uh, in 18, when was it? 1869, I think, the Civil War had passed and... Slaves, in theory, were free. And I understand there was an incident where you were on a train and somebody broke your arm. Can you tell me about that incident? I had just left Washington City, making my way home because, as I said, I was supposed to be a nurse up in Fort Monroe and the war ended and I was, I was coming home. I had to see my papa and my mama. I had to take care of them. I didn't even know that the war was going to end at that time, but praise God it did. And you see, I used to always have a pass. I could go any place I wanted to go. So please allow this woman, Harriet Tubman, to pass wherever she wants to go. It wow, was did a that come from the price. government? Yes, it okay. did itself. Yes. <laughs> and I'd use that to go from here to there, and I... I showed them that letter. I believe it was someplace in Camden. And I, I showed him the letter, and the conductor ripped it up. He said, that's a lie. He said, ain't no black woman have no half-price ticket. He ain't never heard of me, you know. He ain't never heard of half Harry you know. So, so he put me, or oh, I should say, tried to put me in the, in the luggage car with the other black passengers. And I fought him tooth and nail. He said, hey, you call somebody else to come and help him. Hey, come and help me. And one got on one side of me, the other one got on the other side of me, and they lifted me up, and they manhandled me. I said, oh, my Lord, how can you treat a lady this way? And they pulled me, and they wrenched my arm right off my socket. It felt like it. It ain't never been the same since then. I said, this is, this ain't right. Here I was working all that time for the United States government. Everybody knew about me. The Cumbie River Raider, they knew about me. All this claim about how I was helping, people knew about me. Had met all these people. And here I was being treated like I was ready for the boneyard. I ain't ready for the boneyard yet. I ain't ready for the boneyard. Anyway, I told my friend, Martha Coffin Wright, Lucretia Coffin Wright, from Philadelphia, that was her sister, and she was my good friend. It happened that her husband, he was a esquire, and he said, 
he gonna sue him. <laughs> yes, he did. Did he do it? The crime and the thing. No, never did do it. Never did sue. Never did do it. Never did get around to. So there were no consequences for the conductor that broke your arm. No, sir. No consequences. But I understand that Isabella, you know, so join the truth. <laughs> yeah. Isabella Bonfrey was also treated poorly. They threw her off a cable car, New York City, and you know she sued, and she got money for it, too. That's right. They, they threw her off a cable car? Yes, they did. <laughs> and she, yeah. So join the truth. So she was responsible for one of the people responsible for getting the people to get integrate in that cable car. That's right, New York. One of the people. That's right. She, she did get money. Yes, sir. Maybe if your friend would have sued, maybe you would have got money. I bet you would have then. I think that would have been a good idea. And even that Gullah statesman, Robert Smalls, Robert Smalls, who was involved with the planted ship, he took that ship on Charleston Harbor. He took his master's ship, his steam ship that had a, what you call a wartime munitions on it, and it had a book of codes, and he turned that over to the Federal Army out in the harbor. Wow. That was blockading. You know, he come across, he was a little bit of fair-skinned man, plus it was under the cover of dark, maybe about 8 p.m., and he had always seen the pilot, the captain of that little boat, taking off his hat and giving a sign, a special signal, and they bring him through the port, bring him through the port. Yeah, it's all right, he's safe. So at 8 p.m. in the morning, him and his wife and some families that were enslaved, they went across the harbor, and he gave the doop-doop that he hear that pilot give, the captain give, and he took his hat off and he waved the hat, and them confederates, Waved him right on out into free open water. Ooh, I'm talking about free open water. You know what that means, don't yeah. you? They were free. But what was going to happen when the Union soldiers seen him? What was the Navy going to do? Were they going to fire on him? So he takes a sheet and he puts a sheet out, big old sheet, and they bring him on through. And he said, I have delivered this ship to Abraham Lincoln and everything on it. You know, he said something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yes, sir. Later on, he was captain of that ship. Before it went down, he was captain of that same very ship. That's right. That's oh Robert Smalls. Gullah Statesman. Ooh, them Gullah Geeks men. Them men and them women, they was brave. I tell you that. I work with my notes. They was brave people. Well, let me ask you about the – we talked a little bit about the Combe River Raid a little bit ago, and you talk about bravery. This moment where you went and your goal was to free a huge group of slaves, didn't you free on that raid just like hundreds and hundreds of slaves? Can you tell me how that ended? Well, I'm so glad you brought that up again. I was just thinking about that. You know I got a story for everything. That's why people love me. Well, well, Colonel Higgins, he was in charge of the first South Carolina volunteers. James Montgomery was in charge of the second, the union I rode with. Now, 
chickens maybe a few weeks before had gone up the Indus River, and they had freed, set free maybe one, two, or three cannons, and 250 enslaved people. He said, well, I didn't get too much weaponry, so that wasn't that successful. <laughs> but I said to myself, 250, 250 people. Yeah. Three. You see, my time I in Buford and Hilton Head, that was an extension of the Underground Railroad for me. Now, we had gone up in a place called Jacksonville, Florida, and I had sent people out, and they were spies, you see. And I asked them where the armaments were stored and where the supplies were and where the fortifications are, the, you know, dress works and stuff, and where the weakness of the troops were. And so it's not written down in history too many places, but I was the one who planned the Jacksonville raid to set Jacksonville free. Wow. Not too many people know about it. But this time, the government gave me $100. He said, take that money and give it to the Gullah and the Geechee soldiers and their families and send them out there around the Cumbahee River, Middletown Plantation and other plantations. And so I did. And see, I would have a cabin, and after every raid, every skirmish, the soldiers would come to me, and they would tell me what they had seen. So I'd take that information back to General Hunter and to the other generals and soldiers and lieutenants and such, and I tell them what I had learned. So that was the case of the Columbia River Raid. They told me the strength of the enemy, locations where they were encamped, the fortifications, how much supplies, and the weaknesses of the truth. They told me where the cotton was stored. They told me the best places to set the dynamite under the bridges of the railroad. Because South Carolina had one of the most sophisticated railroad systems in the South, in the war at that time, War Department of the South at that time. And they even told me where the landmines were kept. So early that morning at maybe 2 a.m. in the morning, three gunboats went on up there, up the Cumbie River. One of them got stuck on the sandbar, but they kept on coming up. I think that was a back paddler. Maybe with a side pallet, but it was quiet. Ooh, we come up the river. We come up the river. We come up the river. We landed on the beach. Them long boats disembarked the soldiers, and they come up. Some of the people were just getting to the fields about 5 a.m. in the morning, and, then, and, and they, was, they saw the soldiers, and they started running to the woods. And somebody said, halt. It's Lincoln's gunboats, and they come to set us free. Lincoln's gunboats come to set me free. Oh, my goodness. People started dropping the holes and the rakes in the field. People started dropping the plows and the horses just where they lay, and people started running, running to the river. Oh, men and women and children. And that's where you were at the river in the boats, right? Yes, yes, sir. I was standing there. Helm of the boat with Monty on one side of me because I said the only way I'm going to go into this race is with Monty because I know Monty had been with my good friend John Brown 
up and bloody Kansas. You're talking about General Montgomery, is that right? That's right. People are running towards... Yeah, they was running to the river. But you know, they they got the rice fields down there. The rice fields was there. That swamp, and they would go in and plod and plod and and pull into the waters. It was just running for the freedom. By any means, they could get the freedom. Boy, that had to be a sight. Loose gates of the rice they was open to flood it at that time. The water filter, but they kept on running. I hear there was an old couple helping each other down through the fields and helping each other down through the marsh and through the water and through the rice fields, and it was muddy. Their feet got stuck in the water, but they kept on leaning on each other, and they kept on coming to the boat. When they got to the river bank, the long boats were full of people, but everybody was holding on tight, thinking that those boats were going to go off and leave them. So, my government said, what are we going to do, Harriet? Because all these people, must have been more than 850 people that were free that day, by the way. That what are we going to do, Harriet? They won't let the boats go so we could take them to the steamboats. So he said, I know. Give them a song, Harriet. Give them a song. I really didn't want to sing at that time, but I, I said, of all the great creation in the east and in the west, glorious Yankee nation is the greatest and the best. Come along, come along, don't be alarmed. Uncle Sam is rich enough to buy it all a farm. Glory! <laughs> and when I shouted glory, everybody's hands went up in the air, and them gumboats pushed off shore unloaded the passengers, and came on back in. And again, the people crowded into the boats, and they held the boats in hard. Didn't want to let them go. For freedom, can't let them go. So I sung this song again. Of all the great creations in the east and in the west, the glorious nation is the greatest and the best. Come along, come along, don't be alone. Uncle Sam is rich enough to buy y'all a farm. Glory! And they let go of the boats. And they let them people get off and walk the boats on back over and over again. You see, Uncle Sam after that didn't give everybody 40 acres of mule, but he gave some of them people 40 acres of mule. Took it all back later on, but gave them 40 hours, 40 acres, and a government consigned mule. I'm talking about down there in that section building here. Jeez. Well, I tell you, did you want to ask me something else? You know, I got to be honest <laughs> with you. I just, I'm just, my mouth is just hanging open here right now because it just seems like there's nothing that you couldn't do. It's, I'm just so thankful for all this time and for your commitment to, you know, freeing people and all the good that you did in the world because. I mean, even something as simple as them holding on to the boats and you needing to get them to let go so you could get people from one place to the other. I mean, if you weren't in the middle of all of this, there's so much that wouldn't have been done. So I, you've answered all my questions, and I guess I just want to say, is there anything else that you want to add? I just want to say that I, there was a casualty. It wasn't supposed to be one, but there was a casualty that day. See, most of the injuries I treated were in the legs, and the back. You see, they said that people loved the masters and the mistresses so much 
But if they love him that much, why they get shot running away from them? Yeah. Instead of running to them. You know, I mean, they said that, oh, they love to be enslaved. They, they love their rations. They love this. They love that. But most of the injuries that I treated that day were from them running away. People got shot in the back. Little 14-year-old girl got killed that day. And I often wonder today, how did that morning start out with her mama? What did she say to her mama that day? How did they get separated? It just hurt me to my heart. Because there wasn't supposed to be no casualties. But there was. Well, I suppose that... I suppose that one of those, in one of these types of situations, you just have to look at the positive, and you got to look at all the people that you saved. Because, you know, if 850 people got away and you lost one, that's it's terrible. But it's still a lot of people that are free. That is true. That is true. Well, I so hope too that I learned how to read and write one day. I think I'm pretty good, but I I never did learn how to read and write after I had that injury on my head. You know. In my head, I, I never did learn that. You know, that's the last question that I want to ask you. So, what would be the next thing that you'd like to do in your life? What would be the next thing? Would it be to learn to read, or is there something else you'd like to do in this next phase of your life? Well, in this next phase of my life, I so like to vote. Did you say I vote? Like vote. I love to vote. I'd like to vote as a citizen. <laughs> Yeah, they, they said I was free. They said I was a citizen. Was that the 15th Amendment? They said I'm free. That's the 13th. The 13th Amendment gave me my freedom. I want to be a citizen to vote. You want to vote? I want my equal rights, and I'm an equal already. I done proved that already because I was in the fields, the dying fields of Fort Wagner. But I was in them fields, and I, I, when them bullets, Fell like rain. I was among the bullets trying to get them fallen soldiers. I was in the dying fields. Well, Miss Tubman, if there is anybody that in the history of our nation that has earned the right to vote, it certainly would be you. So I'm going to wish you the absolute best, and I'll tell you what, I'm going to say a prayer today and hope that you do get that right to vote because, like I said, nobody's earned it like you. Well, much obliged. I have to agree myself. <laughs> tell the president that now. You tell the president that I need to be able to vote. <laughs> well, he's going to be—he's going to be one of the next people I'll call. So maybe I should give him a call. All right. <laughs> All right. Miss Tubman, thank you so much for your time. I wish you the best. Thank you, Connie. When Harriet was hit in the head, it caused permanent damage that led to seizures. From that point forward, she would have visions that she believed were from God. Considering what she accomplished, maybe they were. She remained deeply religious throughout her entire life. The part of Harriet Tubman's life that moves me the most, though, is how many disadvantages she was born with, and yet she persevered anyhow. She was a five-foot-tall, illiterate black woman born as property to another. As she grew, she was abused and beaten and whipped by every master that owned her. If that was not enough, she watched her family being sold off in pieces to never be seen again. And yet, out of that, the first thing that came to her mind was, I should care about my fellow man and lead people to freedom. 
In our modern world, we are born with so many advantages, it's hard to imagine what a person might accomplish with Harriet Tubman-type energy and not having to start with every disadvantage a person possibly could begin life with. Harriet Tubman shows us all that it's not how you start, it's how you end. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend about Calling History. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.